All right, I don't want to keep you here forever this morning, so let's get going. If you're just joining us, last week we began a journey through the book of Philippians. We're going to take some time looking at it week by week. And um, last week was really a, a context view, so we just zoomed out and had a look at who Paul is, uh, when he was writing this in his missionary journeys. We looked at who the church of Philippi were and the Philippians. We looked at a whole bunch of stuff. And the main kind of thread of last week that I was trying to bring through is how Almighty God sustains a very unusual work where there's just a few weeks where this Apostle Paul and Timothy and Silas are there with the people and there's persecution that breaks out and they only come back six years later. And I asked us the question, what would we have found if we had tried to put something forward in that time? And six years later we came back with the people still be following what we had suggested. And just the power of the sustaining work of God in the Philippian church right from the outset. And when Paul comes back and sees this incredible church who partners with the gospel, as we'll read this morning. So that's kind of some of the context. But the real, the thread of the way we're trying to preach this series is quite unusual. I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable because it's quite far out of my comfort zone. But we're trying to do it in a way that genuinely helps us all to learn how to read scripture for ourselves. So we're tackling it section by section. We're looking at context, the way we're breaking it down, the way I'm going to preach this morning. We're trying to answer the question, how do you read the Word of God for yourself? So that when you go to Romans and Ephesians and any other text that you're engaging with, you have some tools in your hand that you know how to helpfully read God's Word as you come to it. So last week was one of the first lessons, which is look at it in its original context. It doesn't matter what it means to you yet. What did it mean to the people who are hearing it? What was being written by Paul to them is important. All right. If you're a Christ follower this morning, I want you for 30 seconds to reflect back on the day that that happened. Do you remember it? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember what was going on in your life? Maybe some circumstances led you there. And then I want to ask you the second question, as you remember that day, for some of you that day might have been a bit of a journey, it's not necessarily just you know, one revelation moment, I want to ask you a second question, do you have an assurance of your salvation? In other words, are you certain, or is there a moment where the preacher at the end of a message says, does anyone want to give their lives to Jesus, and you kind of feel like you need to again? You know that feeling? You kind of want to come to the front again. Are you certain of the work that's been done in you? That's what we would call assurance of salvation. Let's read together in Philippians chapter 1. The main kind of theme, as you got on your pages last week, that Philippians page that was on the chairs, if you weren't here, there should be some at the back, is living thankfully. That's our theme for today, is living thankfully. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, With the overseers, which is another word for elders and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, this is Paul writing, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace 
both in my imprisonment, which we spoke about last week, that he's writing from a Roman prison, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so a quick flow. It's helpful to read this whole, I've asked you guys this last week to read Philippians again and again, and sometimes to sit down and read it from start to finish. On my Audible Bible, it takes me 18 minutes to listen to the whole of Philippians. It's not a long book. It's quick. And so Paul, when we, we do that, we've got the whole kind of overview. Then we want to zoom in a little bit on this text, 1 to 11. And this is what Paul does, right? He makes like kind of like a sandwich. He starts off and says, I pray for you about such and such. And then it kind of distracts him and makes him think of something else. So he, he shares a bit of something else that comes in the middle. And then at the end, he, he finishes off with what he prays for them. And he completes, he completes his prayer. So that's where we're going to start. We start with his prayer over here. And we're going to finish with his prayer over there this morning at the end of our time together. And then Paul says a whole bunch of things which are deeply encouraging. Do you know in a Christian, after, after a Sunday morning meeting, maybe you share something with them and you've got a problem, you've got something going on in your business or your marriage or something, and they say, I'll pray for you, brother, I'll pray for you. How seriously do you take that? Because for a lot of charismatics, it's just kind of like a Tourette syndrome. It just kind of like pops out, you know? It's just like, oh, I'll pray for you, be blessed, and, you know? And you actually know that this person is never going to pray for you. If they kind of maybe remember one morning that week and they pray for you, or that would be a bonus. But when Paul says to the people, I pray for you, he uses these words. He says, I thank God for you, not just occasionally, but every time I think of you. And then he says, and every time that I pray, I pray for you as well. Every single time that he says he's praying, he prays for them. This is deeply encouraging coming from the Apostle Paul. This is not a charismatic pop. This is genuine, I am praying for you. This is your old grandma that you know spends hours on her knees every day saying, I'm going to pray for you for the next few years for this thing in your life. That's that kind of encouragement. And what Paul is doing is that he's praying, I'm going to write, I hope you can read my writing, joyful, thankful, thankful, Prayers. My daughter says I need to work on my handwriting. She's probably right. But that's, that's what happens in verse 3 to 5. Paul is praying joyful, thankful prayers. So then the immediate question we need to ask is, well, why is Paul praying these joyful, thankful prayers? The message actually says this verse so beautifully. Let me read it to you quickly, this translation. He says, every time you cross my mind, I break, break out in exclamations of thanks to God. Each exclamation is a trigger to prayer. And I find myself praying for you with a glad heart. So why this glad heart? Why this joyfulness? Why this thankfulness? Well, because Paul says, for, he says for two reasons. He says, number one, I thank God joyfully for you because of your partnership in the gospel. Do you see it there? Anybody? Thank you. There we go. And then he says this other strange little phrase. He says, from the 
Do you see it? First day. From the first day. You see, now, remember why Paul is writing this letter. What's the chief reason, the practical reason for Paul's writing? Anyone who was here last week, what's the reason he's writing this letter? To say, I heard it somewhere, to say thank you. So Epaphroditus, who's this leader from the Philippian church, or from Philippi, has been sent nearly 2,000 kilometers to where Paul is in jail in Rome, bringing some funds with him, bringing some kind of gift, and Paul is writing back, saying thank you. And so he is experiencing, right now, a partnership in the gospel. That's why he's writing back. He says, I'm experiencing right now this partnership that you have with me in the gospel. But he's also referencing something that's been going on for the past 10 years. It's not just a one-off experiential moment that they've sent him a gift. He says, you've been partnering with me since the first day until now. So we've got to stop, right? We read these phrases and we just go on. We have to stop and ask, well, what is the first day? Is it the first day of the year? Is it the first day as in their birthday? Is it the first day of some kind of event like a camp or maybe a new job? What's he speaking about? He's speaking about the day of salvation. The day that they came to know Jesus Christ is what Paul says when he says the first day. Now, why is that important? I hear you ask under your breath, or maybe you mumble it. It's extremely important because Paul considers it absolutely normative. It's normal that when you come to know Christ in the New Testament, that you begin to partner meaningfully with the gospel. You begin to bring a contribution, whether that's your gifts, whether that's your time, whether that's your money, whether that's thinking ahead about people, any of these things, you begin to bring a meaningful contribution. Paul, in in effect, is pointing to what other scriptures would teach more explicitly, that the gospel cannot be privatized. It can't just be you and God and TBN and your TV remote at home. It's meant to be something which contributes, which bubbles up out of us and flows out into a community, into others who are spreading God's word. It's not a cultural Christianity that we kind of have no assurance of. We just grew up Christian. Are you following me so far? So this first day... And I'm going to tell you a story about two days. We'll get there just now. But this first day is a moment, a day in their lives where they knew a moment in history that they had come to know Jesus Christ. And so they began to partner in this gospel with Paul. And our main focus for today, in a sense, is verse 6. Let's read it again together. And I am sure of this. Other versions say, I am certain or I am assured. I am certain, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so the second little box over here is, I'll I'll call it assurance of salvation. You know, it took me quite a while to practice writing this and speaking. It's quite complicated because you want to write down what you're actually saying. That's why I stop speaking when I do it. Assurance of salvation. 
That's verse, so this is verse 3 to 5. This is verse 6. And we'll keep coming around to these things as we go through the morning. So when, you, when it says that I am certain of this thing, well then you must ask, so here we asked why. Why is Paul praying joyful, thankful prayers? Now he's, now he's saying that he's assured of their salvation. So we should ask how or why again. How is he assured of their salvation? Well, he says two things, and they're very beautiful things, and we're just going to go through them quite briefly. We could spend weeks on just these two things. He says this, he says, because, who does the work? What's the word in your text? I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in you. See, we receive huge assurance of our own salvation when we remember that it is God who is doing the work. Let me tell you something, that if, if the assurance was in me, if the assurance relied on me, I would be the other side of assurance. I would be, I'm like the antithesis of assurance in terms of salvation. If it was me that it was being based on, there's no such thing as assurance of salvation. The only fact we have the phrase or this, this understanding from Scripture of the assurance of salvation is because He did it. He is doing it. He is bringing it to completion. And I could spend ages on that if we had the time. The next important point that we reach is who is the work, who is it happening to and what's going on? The work is, what's that little word? In. Not for. Why doesn't Paul say there he's completing the work for you, thinking about the crucifixion of, of Christ? You see, what he's, he's speaking about is he's, let me write this word down here quickly, in you. What Paul is speaking about is growing in godliness. So Christ has done something for them. He could point to that as well, but he's not saying that. He's saying, I'm assured that he who began a good work in you. So it's an ongoing word. It's spiritual formation. Uh, what's his name? Um, the guy who wrote the message, Eugene Peterson, calls it a long obedience in the same direction. I love that phrase. You've heard me use it before. A long obedience in the same direction. Waking up and doing the boring stuff day after day after day. Letting God change us moment by moment by moment through our boring lives. See, and what does this have to do with assurance? Well, for me personally, I am deeply assured of my salvation as I see evidence of God in my life. As I see God enabling me to work out godliness that I know I can't do on my own. When I see Him working things out and fruit popping out of my life that I know is not there, it's just left to my own devices, I am deeply assured that it's Him who's doing the work in me. That the Holy Spirit is doing stuff that I can't physically get to myself or do in my own strength. And then in this, in this verse 6, Paul uses this very strange phrase. The day, remember I told you I'm going to tell you about two days today? Do you see it there in verse 6? I'm just going to call it the day of Jesus. Or I'll put Christ there as well because he does. He calls it the day of Jesus Christ. That's when he's going to complete this. So this is, 
This is quite interesting because you've got this first day. What happens on this first day? Something starts. Something begins. Now Paul's using the word complete. And he's saying there's another day. There's a second day which is coming. And he calls it the day of Jesus Christ. And he says that this day is going to complete what this day began. Right? So we can call this a story of two days. I almost went with a tale of two days, Mr. Dickens. So something starts and something must finish. And then we see this not just in verse 6. Did you notice it a little bit further down in verse 10? Go to verse 10 with me and you see, So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Alright, now when we read a phrase like that, just like when we read first day, we needed to stop and think, and that was more immediately obvious. When we read a day like the day of Jesus Christ, we need to ask, well, what is that? What is this day of Jesus Christ? Because if we're going to be completed with what he started there, over there, it's pretty important, wouldn't you say, that we know what's going on on the day of Jesus Christ. And so, anyone with, with internet, you've got Google, you've got a, a ready-made concordance. We used to have to go and flip through big books to try and find all the cross-reference names. Now, you can just go, and they're expensive as well. You can just go on Google, type in something like the day of Jesus Christ, and look for all the places where that occurs. And I'm going to go through a few of them with you this morning. We're not going to turn there because it will take too long. You can write them down, and they'll be up on the screen behind me. Isaiah 13, verse 6 is, is one of the spaces that we see it in the Old Testament. And it says, Well, weep, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, so it will come. Okay, so I'm going to call this section over here, Judgment Day. Sounds like a Hollywood blockbuster that no one wants to see. So, this day over here, wail. What other words do you see there that are dark and scary? Destruction. There's a day of destruction coming. Then we turn to another text and we see Ezekiel 30 says, for the day is near, the day of the Lord. Do you see them keep referencing the day of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, it's all the same thing. For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom. Not like the doom that the pastor was spraying up in Gauteng on his people, if you followed that story. This is a different kind of doom. This is not a healing doom at all. A day of doom, and the metaphor there is clouds, which is not like rain clouds, but dark and heavy. And he's saying that there's going to be a serious judgment on unbelieving nations. Joel 1.15, Joel the prophet cries out and he says, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. So it's not just destruction, but it's destruction from the worst place possible, from God. God's going to bring the destruction upon them. You'll notice in the Old Testament that very often they speak about it being near. They say it's near, it's near, it's near. And the Old Testament is kind of a foreshadow and it's almost like you're looking through a, 
I was going to draw a telescope. I'm not going to do that. But uh, it's almost like you're looking through a prophetic telescope. And so this judgment that's going to happen that the prophets are talking about is an immediate judgment. So there's going to be an exile on Israel, or sometimes they're speaking about other nations who've oppressed Israel, and God's going to judge those nations, and those things are in history, we've got them, they're already recorded. But it's also a foreshadow pointing to this great day of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, where that destruction is meant to show us what's going to happen prophetically in the future. Quite scary, eh? Let me get a different color pen just to change the mood. So then we turn to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we find out in John chapter 5 and in other passages, think of Matthew 25 when we, when we launched um, Surf Stellenbosch. Remember Lex came and spoke with us? He, he spoke out of Matthew 25, the story of the sheep and the goats. And who is the judge? Who's the judge sitting on the throne that's going to execute these judgments over here? None other than Jesus Christ. None other than Jesus himself is going to be sitting on the throne. John 5 says it like this, And he has given him, speaking about Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now we're kind of getting an idea of what Paul's speaking about when he says God's going to complete what happened on the first day. He's going to complete it on the last day. But I'm like, man, if that's what's going to happen, I don't want that thing to be complete. So we turn to the New Testament. Thank God that we've got that. And we begin to see what Paul says about this day. And he carries on the Old Testament themes, but he also begins to introduce something new. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8 says, As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see there's this ray of hope, which actually if you go and read the Old Testament texts again, you'll find little hints of hope that there's going to be this God who's going to come and He's going to, he's going to do something different through the story. It's interesting in this text that the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, all three of them are used, and those are used interchangeably by Paul. Day of the Lord, day of Jesus, day of the Christ, they're all the same thing. They're all pointing to the same final day. And then the last text we'll look at around this day of Jesus Christ is 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1, I think it is, verse 6 to 10. Listen to this, because this speaks about both of these very powerfully. I'm going to write here, but also. Do you know what I mean? So it's this. It's this thing over here, this judgment day, this terrible day. Then there's Jesus, and because of Jesus, we have a but also. There's an alternate ending to the story. And Thessalonians shows this so beautifully. It says, Since indeed God considers it just to replay with affliction, with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief. Let's write that down. That's the good side, right? To grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
says the New Testament folks, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That for me is probably the most horrible, horrific judgment day reality. Away from God. Away from the presence of God. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day. But then it speaks about something else and it says, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at. Do you know what another word for marveled is here? Worshipped. Worshipped. Worship two Ps. Doesn't matter, does it? This day is coming. That won't matter at all. (laughs) To be marveled at among those who believe because our testimony to you was believed. And so we see really clearly that you get this day of destruction. And yet at the same time, God is making a way, has made a way that we receive relief. When I think of the word relief, I remember just after our honeymoon, we went down to the wild coast to see my folks. And as we arrived, my dad had just capsized his new boat at Backline on the wild coast. And that all swam back. But there was this anchor that had fallen off the boat. The whole thing sunk. There was this anchor that went down and it left this rope that was running in the Backline waves like this. And other boats were launching, and we were worried they'd hit the engines would get stuck in this rope, and obviously that's not a good thing. So my brother-in-law, who's a lifesaver, and myself, who's definitely not a lifesaver, we began to catch the outgoing current because there's a, there's a river that runs out, the Mgazana River, and we'd catch, we'd, we'd jump in, we'd catch this river that would run out, and then there was this massive rip which would pull us left, and we were trying to catch this rope, and if we caught it. Then we could tie it with another rope and we were going to pull it out the land cruiser. We had a whole plan. We pull it out on the beach with the land cruiser. And so we tried about four, I think it was the fifth time that we tried. And I caught the anchor rope and he went back to get the other rope now to bring it. But he missed me. The rip was too quick and it pulled him past. And I was exhausted. So I lay on my back and I just was just lying there just like at the at back line. And the next minute, honestly, I felt like I was in a washing machine. I went underwater, I lost, I just, I was full of water, I was panicking, I didn't know what was going on, and I was far out at sea. And I just began to cry out to Jesus, because I was convinced I was done. I honestly thought I had drowned. I don't know how long, it felt like two minutes, but it was probably like a minute, I don't know. But I was underwater for a long, long time. I didn't know where up was, I didn't know where down was, you're completely disorientated. And I was crying out to God, and I was terrified, and my feet hit the ground. I felt sand between my toes and I began to cry with relief. That's relief. I went and I lay on that beach and Kate came running because she was probably like about 500 meters where she thought I was going to come out. I was way down the bottom of the beach. And I just lay there in exhaustion and relief. My father-in-law happened to be on the boat that my dad capsized. Didn't sleep that whole night. He had a serious revelation moment around the nearness of death. <laughs> but this is what God does when He grants us relief. 
It's why we marvel. That's why we why we worship. And what I mean, what response must this evoke in us? Thankfulness. It must evoke thankfulness. When we speak about living thankfully, when we speak about coming and living thankfully before our God, I'm not talking about that in a kind of let's learn some gratitude. Let's learn to say thanks mom and dad for the car you gave me. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this incredible relief which from here we're saying, God, we live thankful because you've granted us relief. We marvel and we worship at you. We're thankful because this is what we were meant to get. We were meant to get that. If it wasn't for Jesus. If it wasn't for Jesus. Remember I told you everything in Philippians revolves around this this piece in Philippians chapter 2. You can read it from verse 3 to 10. And I've challenged us as a congregation to learn that by heart over the next weeks. That section in Philippians. And I'm going to try and teach my children that as well. And it's so beautiful. It speaks about Christ who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant and came down and was crucified, humbling himself to live as a man. That brings thankfulness. Now I want to show you in closing, I want to take you back to verse 3 and 5. See, if God didn't complete this work, if God didn't do the last day change and change from the first day, the story of two days, if God didn't do that, Paul wouldn't have been able to pray joyful, thankful prayers. His joyful, thankful prayers come because the gospel has changed so much that this day, instead of being a day of terror, away from God, of doom, of destruction, of wailing, and there's even more emotive words that the Bible uses around this terrible, terrible day. Instead of that, if the gospel hadn't come, that would have been our reality. We get this. No wonder Paul is full of joy. No wonder Paul is full of thankfulness for the people of Philippians when, they, when he says, this, com- this came and completely changed your story. This changed the end of your story. This first day. But it's not just for the people of Philippians that Paul is joyful and thankful. He says, I thank God that you partner with me in the gospel. In other words, that you give other people their first day. So this is for the Philippians. It's for others. And that means us. Because the Philippians have continued to partner in the gospel and thousands of men and women from that time until today, we get to say, us. We had our first day when we came to know Christ and we got to have the privilege, not the effort of the inconvenience of the gospel, no, the privilege of working together as a community, learning about our Christ and learning what it means to live it out. And this joy and this thankfulness is because on this day, on this final judgment day, there are going to be others who stand redeemed with us instead of condemned here. They're going to be there. Change colors again. Paul completes his prayer. Let's read it in verse 9 and 11. And as we read it, we now 
transitioning, I suppose, this morning to ask, well, what did this mean for the Philippians? What does this assurance mean? What does this partnering in the gospel mean? What is it? How do they apply it into their lives? How do they live in this space? So I'm going to write here, I've done a little time continuum. First day, and day, I'll just call it day of Christ. And the question we're asking is, what do we get to put in between these days? How do we live? How do we apply these days? The space. Philippians 1 verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. So I'm not going to spend much time here, but because of what he has done in verse 9 to 11, we get to abound in love. More and more and more. We get knowledge. This knowledge is not a university head knowledge. This is a knowledge of love. We understand what God has done for us. We get discernment. As Wally would say when he was with us, discernment. One of his little ticks that I tease him about. We get an incredible assurance. Look at verse 10. We will be pure, blameless. Anybody feel like that this morning? You're pure. You're blameless, without fault. This is what he's completing. This is the story of the two days that we're going to stand on the day of Jesus Christ and not have that. Pure and blameless. We will be filled with fruit of righteousness. Here's the beautiful thing. That we get to live that. I really need another color now. We get to live in all of these things and all that it means. And I'm hardly, I mean, I'm barely touching them. I'm just showing you what it says there. And you can go and think about those things. But when I think about my kids, it's a helpful framework for me to just realize I want more for my kids than for me, if you know what I mean. Like I actually desire better for their lives than for my own life. And when I think of them being filled with the fruit of righteousness and what that will do to their marriages one day. What that will do to the actual experience of the world and the joy that they have and understanding what Christ has done. When I think of, when I think of them growing in discernment, not falling to every business trap. God knows some investment guys need that discernment. Some of us need that stuff in our life, chasing after a whole bunch of, of things. God knows how we need love. What's so beautiful is that this happens not because we're trying to achieve this. We don't do this stuff. We don't try and act filled with righteousness. We don't try and grow in love and act in discernment and act in knowledge because we're trying to somehow prove to God that we don't deserve this judgment day. He's already done it. This is a response to this. When we understand what He's done... When we understand what He's done on the first day and that He's the one who's working to complete it in us, 
on the day of Jesus Christ, we begin to grow in these things as an assurance of our salvation, as a sign of our salvation. Because of what Christ has done, we get to do. Does that make sense? And that's the story from the start to the finish of what Paul is saying in this text. We get to do it because of what Christ has done. See, last week, as I started off, I'm finishing now. I've got one minute left. The heart of what I wanted to get across last week was how incredible God was at sustaining that early church that was birthed in circumstances where none of us would have have anticipated it being able to survive. The, The thread of what I'm sharing with us this morning is the incredible miracle of God being able to sustain us just like He sustained the Philippian church through everything. He sustains us through everything that you are facing. Not just sustains you, but later on we're going to read in Philippians says, you can rejoice. And I'll say it again, Paul says, rejoice. Yes, you're facing bankruptcy. Rejoice. Yes, you're facing marriage problems. Rejoice. Yes, you're facing singleness. Rejoice. Whatever it is that you're facing, rejoice. And the incredible miracle that from this first day until this last day, He's completing the work in us. He's doing it. I'm done for the morning. I want to do a couple more things. I want to say for the next eight weeks or so, if you aren't part of a life group, well, let me start here. If you are part of a life group, go. Don't be that guy that comes once every four weeks. Go. We're going to be looking at Philippians in most of the groups. Not all of them, but most of them. We're going to be digging in more to see what Paul means. I can't cover. There's tons more in this text that I can't cover. And then if you aren't part of a life group, get into a life group. Even if it's just for the next eight weeks to say to the leader, hey, we're going to come and join you for eight weeks. Is that all right? And go and join in. And if for, you've got a really good reason, I know some of you do, why you can't get out in an evening or whatever else, I'm trying to leave you without an excuse to look more into the book of Philippians. I'm going to run a group at 8 o'clock on a Wednesday morning, probably, if that works. 8 o'clock on a Wednesday morning, just for an hour and a half. If you're a couple and only one of you can get out, just send one. Just one of you come along. And we're going to dig more into the book of Philippians. So if that's you... Come and find me directly after this meeting. I'll be somewhere at the front or out having coffee and I'll put your name on a little list and then we'll communicate around what time we're going to do it and where we're going to do it and whatever else. And we can go more into the book of Philippians in those times. And then I want to speak to those of us who maybe are listening to this and you're like, man, I don't want this. I don't want this judgment day. But you also know that there's no moment of relief yet in your life. That you don't know the Saviour. And I want to give you a moment this morning where you can respond. This is not just like a decision thing where you stick your hand up and then that's it and you're you're kind of done. This is a God's going to complete the work in you. He wants to work in you. He wants to grow you. He wants to plant you in community. He wants to water this little seedling. But this morning I want to give us an opportunity if you don't know this Christ for that seedling to be planted, for God to put that in your heart and you to respond and say, I believe I believe in Jesus. So let's close in prayer together and we'll be done. Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that something that's written so many thousands of years ago can still speak into our lives, into our circumstances, into what we're facing. Thank you, God, that you didn't just give us Jesus and throw it out there and kind of say, good luck, carry on with it, but that you're also the one who sustains and is completing the work and that we can sit here this morning with a deep, deep conviction in our hearts and assurance that you're the one that's going to do the work in us and bring us to completion, that we're going to stand, that me with all my sin, with all my junk, that I'm going to stand and you're going to say, pure, blameless, God, if that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. The greatest miracle that you would take us who weren't even reaching out for you and would bring us into this spacious place, unbelievable and yet believable. We look to you, the one who will complete us, God. If you're here this morning and that call that I gave at the end is for you, if you don't know this Jesus, I want you to respond. And to do that, I'm going to ask you if you'd put your hand up. And then I'm going to get with you at the end of the meeting and just help you understand what it is that you've done and walk you through it. Maybe you're not quite there yet. That's okay. I'd still love to meet you and walk on a journey with you or with somebody else in this congregation. So if there is anybody like that, just once I'm going to ask, why don't you just slip your hand up now?